was uh, it was just it was just working with a brand I think that um, really started opening my eyes down what it, what is your how is something made and you start looking into it going wow you know distillation and that process and I got fascinated by that. Welcome to the Lush Life Podcast. I'm your drinking companion, Susan Schwartz, and I bring you the how-to guide for living one cocktail at a time. Thanks to my mother's love of martinis, the first words I spoke were shaken, not stirred, and I've been obsessed by cocktails ever since. Together, we'll learn from bartenders, brand ambassadors, distillers, and others why certain drinks are popular in certain cultures, how to make the perfect old-fashioned, when to shake and when to stir, and so much more. Hear that sound? It's time to cozy up to the bar and let the fun begin. So here we are at Season 2 with 50 episodes in the bag and a new name, The Lush Life Podcast to go hand-in-hand with my new website, A Lush Life Manual, the how-to guide for living life one cocktail at a time. To inaugurate this brand spanking new season, I was lucky enough to sit down with Olivier Ward. After getting tired of drinking tonic neat, he not only added a little gin to it, but also founded the Gin Foundry, the one-stop shop for all things gin. I met him in their tasting room, to discover when he took that first sip. So um, I grew up mainly in London, to be honest with you. Um, I went to school here, uh, but mum's Swiss, uh, dad's English, um, and family base was in Paris. So slightly international already in terms of where we grew up, how we and our family. It's three brothers in total. Um, two of us went to school in the UK, one of us in, uh, in Paris. And um, I've been London-based pretty much all my life. So, Did you um, go back and forth? Yeah, all the time. Young? Absolutely, yeah, all the time. And, um, you know, we travelled around, um, lived in different places, but um, it was... Uh, family home's always been in Paris. Now it's London, because they've... Uh, both our parents are here. Um, and uh, all three of our, uh, like, us siblings are, are all in all in London as well. So we're... we're um, it's, it's internationally minded, I suppose, but, we're yeah, we're very much rooted here. I'm assuming because you have the gin foundry that you like gin. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, what was your first connection with gin? I, I fell into gin. Um, really did. Um, actually, had no, um, really no. It wasn't really, you know, one of those lifetime gravitational pulls to it. Although I think now, I think I was probably predisposed from childhood, as opposed to um, not not just from like gin being in in the household, but um, you know, gin's core ingredient, juniper, is really deep forest pine. So when you think south of France, you think holidays. You know, those those really. Uh, huge aromas that come through uh, in big classic dry gins that juniper that's really uh, for, for me that's quite nostalgic and calming in a weird way but anyway that aside so that, that wasn't a conscious sort of you know like oh hey let's get you used to this but, uh, no I fell into it um, coming out of university um, I, I desired a BA in design um, design product um, interactive products so immersive installations um, I made some lights that were the louder you speak, the brighter they get. So they were conversational lights. So would you shut up if you took a spotlight, basically? Okay, so that. it's a responsive environment. Uh, does the environment that you're in change your attitude? Yes, it does. To so the way you interact. 
So, oh my god, my lights yeah. would be like yeah. so bright all the time. All the time. Right, so do you have to change how you how you then interact with someone around you based on cue information? So it was that, and it was a little installation, and um, the guys from uh, William Grant saw it. Uh, well, I was then uh, from based off that I was asked to join and design uh, to do, uh, yeah, a design project for their gin brand Hendrix that they had only put to bartenders at the time that hadn't had a consumer facing activation so they had a gin they had a bottle they had an idea and an ethos around it and they kind of said that and they wanted to take it to a consumer audience so the challenge then was who can create stuff for that consumer like interactive installations immersive uh, experiences and so that's why I got brought on board to do a carriage of curiosities and, and I guess when you drank Hendrix for the first time, did that take you right back to uh, those no, not, not woods? Not, not, yeah, not, not, not laden uh, woods. Uh, no, Hendrix is um, a lot more. I think a lot more progressive. You know, so it was a lot more floral, um, and um, you know, obviously big rose and cucumber notes. Mm-hmm. But um, it was uh, it was just it was just working with a brand. I think that um, really not just the production, all the all the products, but you know, the humans behind it as well. And there wasn't that much um, conversation at the time. This is what two thousand and nine. 2008, I think I started working, um, yeah, um, with, with with them, and um, you know that was pre Sip Smith. When you think 2009 for them, bringing the human face back to the category, I suppose, um, and really gave me access to that and uh, an inherent interest in growing. I, I just I spent three three and a half years helping. I suppose Hendrix with started off as design and production. Then it began. Oh, do you want to do some events with them? Yeah, sure. Do you want to do the design, production, events, and PR? Okay, sure. Do you want to do also? You know, then then start helping. You know, from a and a multi-multidisciplinary agency. It must have been so incredible to see yeah. them grow to what they've yeah. become. Yeah, absolutely. And but it just it, that was like it was a core team that was just really fantastic at seeing a long-term vision. Um, not just before the trend saw it, but actually just having a great idea and incubating it for long enough and believing in that vision and believing in the people implementing that vision. And that, that, I think that's probably their biggest credit. You know, a lot of the big brands go, well, how did they do that? They didn't flip-flop. That's really what it came down to. And you look at other brands at the time, they were like, they're chopping and changing um, and they didn't have that long-term traction. So, yeah, it was... Um, yeah, we worked on that for three and a bit years and we were on the fence as to whether we'd do another three years, but I, I started wanting to write a, a little bit more about gin because I understood the cat- like, understood more of the category, wanted to be a little bit more independent. And at that time, having worked as an individual really became actually into an agency uh, that we'd grown around, like, you know, that managed to grow around ourselves. Um, so we started working in whiskey professionally um, and uh, building Who was brands. We? Uh, so Emil and I, Emil, have joined uh, anonymous artists. Yeah, my brother. Um, and uh, so from an individual, I set up anonymous artists as a multidisciplinary studio, and from that we grew as a team. Emil came on board. And what we, was Emil doing? Uh, Emil was uh, finishing an ad uh, degree an advertising degree at uh, BU um, and then he'd worked uh, for about a year working on social media campaigns advertising campaigns um, within another London based agency um, so already had that uh, so quite a nice complementary skill set mm-hmm. to what we were doing on behalf of clients um, and so we chose to work with whiskey clients so that we could so that I could be a little bit more impartial because I'd started writing about gin and just behind the scenes just a really basic blog um, and I was really enjoying it at the time. So we thought, yeah, this is a great way to continue on within the drink mm-hmm. sphere, continue on what we're doing, and actually develop a passion project on the site um, that was the gin blog at the time it was called. Um, and uh, that 
blog grew from there in the same way that our whiskey work grew from there. We worked on brands like the Balveni, like uh, Monkey Shoulder, and mm-hmm. helping rejuvenate that brand. Um, and Gin Foundry really wasn't an entity until way later on. It took another two, three, two, three years. Before we get to Gin Foundry, mm. wait, I want to ask you, when you were young, when you, as, as brothers, were, were you, what were you drinking in the house? Was it all wine because your well, no, there was family's quite, in Paris? No, yeah, there was a lot of wine. Um, I, I think there was a lot of wine, a lot of beer, a lot of drink, just a lot of good time. You know, it was um, a fantastic family atmosphere always, and that, that comes with food and drink. So I think food and drink was always at the hub of the home. The kitchen's always been the hub of the home as well, you know, and mm-hmm. still is today, and even in all of our flats, so I see it now actually it's just essentially extended kitchens everywhere and when you were um, at university uh, in the, yeah, uni was um, uh, uh, uni was a start of gin but don't forget gin was butchered more often than not back then you know 2007 2006 2007 you know it was really quite difficult to walk into a pub and go can I have a gin and tonic and, and not have something putrid so yeah everyone to, says it's what their grandmother drank right, you know and, and, <gasps> um, and so it was it was, it was I, I've never been that big into beer I find I find you know I, I, I enjoy it I don't tend to find it that uh, it's interesting, it, intellectually really interesting. Flavor-wise, I'm like I'm, I'm kind of over it after a pint. So I've always been quite curious as to different spirits, both from whiskey, sometimes gin. There really wasn't that much selection to keep us going. I think um, looking back, our grandfather used to distill kirsch and cherries and plums and stuff like that, um, and not as a professional distiller, he was a farmer and um, mm-hmm. amongst many other many other hats um, but so yeah we've always grown up around uh, fortified spirits and or some, someone making something some, in yeah, the back room something fermenting in the <laughs> corner <laughs> just sometimes better than better than others we actually found some of the some of these old bottles uh, a couple of years ago and, uh, and uh, they were like oh, I remember our mother she was saying oh, it gets better with time it gets better with time this thing had 1980 on it in 1985 it did not get better it was vinegar <laughs> <laughs> it was awful <laughs> so, it was, um, it's one of those things where um, we, I, I suppose when you look back you, you start seeing all of these links that you've mm-hmm. missed beforehand but it certainly wasn't a conscious you know life around booze you know mm-hmm. so you weren't you know, just a G&T drinker before this no but you know I always, I always liked gin uh, like and Dan's always been a huge ton- actually more tonic mm-hmm. um, for him it was, he's always liked G&T's but very much tonic I've, I've always loved tonic that really bitter edge and actually drinking tonic neat with no gin was something that I always enjoyed um, mm-hmm. and that's I know it's a bit weird because it is so bitter but it's something I've, I've that, that's probably my uh, sharpest memory from growing up is actually, actually Schweppes just on its own um, and lots of it um, but yeah that was that was in, a, in abundance so you were like what can I mix with my tonic yeah. instead well, of my, what can yeah. I mix with my gin uh, yeah completely but co- you know cocktail culture as well has evolved over that time so it was really at that point where you know from 2005 through to now cocktail culture is evolving so the interest shifts from um, you know, natural cultural media all around you from the Tom Cruise era through to the, you know, the speakeasy eras and, you know, and, and so actually you can see the shift all around you at the same time as my learning and my, from a, not just a professional, but from, uh, I suppose, post-university days through to, through to today, um, really, yeah, you kind of graduated into something a little bit more sophisticated. Yeah, and as much as I want to laugh at the Tom Cruise character, um, so many people I interview say, oh, well, I have yeah. to tell you the secret that I got into this yeah, yeah. because I saw everyone, Tom Cruise. Every, 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 everyone saw that. You know, every, uh, exactly, every, everyone saw that. And I wanted to do what he did. Yeah. But, like, but that's really where culture was, and you thinking about sort of 
Mai Tais and pina coladas and yeah trashy cocktails and that's that's just the reality of what everyone was drinking back then. Mm-hmm. and you know that's those you know late 90s like late 90s to 2000s noughties that's that, that's that era of cocktails for, mm. for better and for worse and quite frankly mostly for worse yeah. so I interrupted you when you yeah. were working on whiskey uh, so yes we worked on so whiskey writing about back gin back to the future yeah writing about gin um, and uh, a couple of years ago I think it was 2013 2014 we made the decision um, let's let's try and transition what really had stopped being a blog and started being much more of the start of a company um, into something full time and I say it stopped being just a blog because we had uh, five years ago we had uh, uh, an, an idea talking about it going no one has booze filled advent calendars that seems stupid should we make an advent calendar filled with booze um, it was a really simple concept and we were like surely someone's done this and any good idea someone's done it before right no one had done it and I was like well why why not so we actually built a one one meter by two meter giant calendar and I've but, seen it on, yeah. on your site yeah yeah and, uh, so, and, uh, and then, then that got miniaturized the year after Ginvent um, so and uh, it, it becomes a product. So it was full bottles the first so time? The, fir- the first time was, yeah. It was actually 25 full bottles in Graphic Bar. Um, and uh-huh. that was the first time we uh, we, we, did, we did it. And because uh, everyone was like, I love it, but obviously that's like 700 quid's worth of gin. It's massive. You can't can't really buy it, can you? How did you pick your twenty-five? Uh, it was my. Well, that was just my favorite twenty-five of, of, yeah. of that time. I wanted to show diversity. I wanted to show some of my favorites, but I also wanted to make sure that there was something that I could take within a bar and that they could serve it. Um, like gin, twenty-five different. Well, it would have been twenty. There was twenty-three different days because obviously they weren't open Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. Christmas Day. But uh, twenty-five different gins, so they could serve them differently. But we could then online and social do something around them so I had to have some versatility of makers and uh, but even when you think five years ago picking 25 gins sure quite easy but actually con- compared to now that was quite I was almost representative of a quarter of the category you know oh so it wasn't it was actually like oh wow that's a hell of a lot of gin in one place whereas you think 25 gins that's nothing that's just mm-hmm. a drop in the ocean um yeah, how times have changed. Uh, but yeah, that, that project got miniaturized the next uh, the next year. We worked with guys at Atom Supplies who own Master of Mold, okay. Drinks by the Dram, to miniaturize it well, based on demand. And it was a really nice, to be honest, it was a really nice conversation that is quite naive now when you look back at it. But um, it's 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 worked for us, so why not? Um, you know, they were like, if we do whiskey and uh, rum and brandy and all these other spirits and you go to gin vent wouldn't it be immense we'll let's all work and we're like yeah let's let's feed into this wider this wider concept mm-hmm. and and um and and develop uh, de- develop an offering from that but yeah so there was gin vent but equally we had um gin distillers from all around the world come to us and go well you're writing about gin i know you guys do events and stuff like that on behalf of clients separately could you host an event for us and we were like because they didn't have enough traction or enough consumer awareness or they're mm-hmm. looking to launch or whatever it was and um uh for the for the most part we, we we'd have been asked this question a few times by a few different and we just thought well hang on if you guys all got together and just had one event in which you were all there would you mind and they were like hell no let's go in and that's great they um, didn't think oh so wait like, no, this no, is going to be competitive no competitive no it's like oh, no because they're all small names uh-huh. and they were like well great if you bring a big audience then yeah let's bring a big audience and, and so Juno Palooza was born um, and that was really just we just thought well hang on you've got seven or eight makers should we just invite see who else wants it and 
first year there's about 20 22 makers i think and how long ago was that the first year uh four years ago now Mm -hmm. so so we had this event that we were doing on the side whilst we were still agency and this product this blog and we thought well that's the start of something amazing we were having so much fun doing it because it was just entirely passion project and we thought let's over time organically transfer across to make that full time and so the gin blog became gin foundry that was a better umbrella for the project and juniper for gin van and juniper loser and that's the journey that started along and we transitioned from all working in on it like i suppose emil and i working agency regime as well as uh, there's a graphics and been doing been responsible for our aesthetic for for many years now um yeah, transitioned as well, and yeah, taking the team across and building Gin Foundry uh, as it is today. Well, over over three four years. <laughs> yeah, and so now Junapalooza, how many were there this year? So uh, we cap it every song, every single okay. time. So we always we always so this year there were fifty five participants exhibitors of which 50 were gins um, so there were five tonics and, and so other. you have to be so, chosen yeah, as no, one yeah, of the 50 yeah definitely because it's just like a, um, it's a combination of sobriety you know it's once you you know you pay your 35 quid or however much the Australian version is in, in pounds because we do one in Melbourne as well um, and then everything you can get a sample from wherever alright so or whoever um, if you so yeah, you kind of have to go. There has to be a, a stop to this, otherwise people just walk around all day, and and then no one wants that. You know, like both it's reckless, but also the distillers don't want that either. Um, so we, yeah, we cap we cap it at that. We always get, we honestly get hundreds of requests, and I'm sure um, and it's, it's it's become weirdly problematic, which is a really it's. Must be really difficult to choose. Uh, yes and no, but we have a we have the same policy every year. It is first come first served, okay. and people get really annoyed about that because <laughs> we're like oh, it's first come first served. By the way, this is it's like everyone on the phone the first day, twenty four hours. Gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and and it, and it is that, and it's like well, it's not that we don't want to work with you guys again. It's just we just do it. That's the that's, that's the only way that we can make it fair. Otherwise, you end up working with the same guys all the time and then consumers want difference but equally if you only prioritise new then that's not really what the category is mm-hmm. about it's about celebrating the category as is so it's, it's the only way of getting a fair snapshot of where of where the category is today is to yeah. Just, yeah, now you cool. said about Melbourne that you have one in Melbourne how yeah. come you decided to go there so uh, Caroline Childry who um, runs the Gin Queen is an amazing uh, Australian gin blogger out there um, and she uh, wanted to do events um, and wanted to do an event with us um, she is based in Melbourne, um, but equally, when you look at um, the Australian markets, uh, Melbourne is really where you get more food and drink connoisseurs. Mm-hmm. When it, certainly, when it comes to gin, there's a more there's a more active bar scene. There's more interest in the craft behind the product, not just the showiness of the product. So it needs a little bit more showy. Melbourne's a little bit more mm-hmm. foodie, so it felt right that that was the place to go and do it. And the combination of Caroline being down there and you know, we're all for collaboration and, and she's been an amazing partner for us. And that, that's, it really started again, one of those conversations where you're like, do you want to do it? Yeah, I want to do it. Do you want to do it? Then and it just became a thing. So we now have one in London, one in, one in Melbourne. We're considering adding more to the calendar, but the show's USB means, you know, it is a meet the maker show. Mm-hmm. With no maker, there is no show. No maker, there is no stand. So if you don't show up with the distiller or owner, we, we pack down the stand, literally. Right. And people think we joke about that. Don't there was a couple of this year that we said, uh, you know, sorry, but people come to meet the distiller. Right. Um, and so, but because of that, you can't have 17 a year because that's a ridiculous amount to ask. I Both small craft distillers 
also the big guys as well to come and support you for you, you can only have two or three a year at most. So how many native gin makers were there in Australia? Uh, predominantly. Uh, actually, I think, uh, I, I can't remember how much we had. In, like, uh, certainly uh, over 20 uh, were from Australia or New Zealand. Um, well, I suppose Tasmania as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I consider Tassie right. as part of a lot of Tassie makers. Um, and I would say only a handful of internationals who fly all the way out there because again it's quite a big commitment to come to Melbourne in person to do that and this year we have um, I think it's uh, 35 distillers uh, in total of which uh, I think 25 are I suppose from Australasia Were there gins you had never heard of oh, when you got time. over there? Yeah, yeah, all the time when you're meeting people and, and they're, they're talking about sometimes it was really confusing for me because um, here you, you can the, a, a name of a distillery is so interchangeable with the name of their product, which is not often the same thing. Whereas out there, I'm, I'm now used to seeing, okay, well, I now, I know Bass and Flinders. And then someone's like, oh, yeah, it's the Red Angel. I'm like, who makes that? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's you guys. And I'm like, I'm just like, and you know, so yeah, it was, it was great because it's a complete discovery. And um, equally, you can see the gins, you can taste it, but you really never get an idea of the, um, the feel of a distillery until you really meet the people and get their idea and get their inspiration and, you get the character of the, the the maker as well as what they make, and and so for for me, yeah, it was uh, it was really uh, yeah fantastic to discover that, but also quite heartening and to to see uh, such a vibrant community at such an early stage as well. Because when you think they're much smaller than as in much, uh, they're not, they're not. People always say oh, they're behind the UK trend. They're not. They're on their own path and their own on their own timeline but there's a smaller community of them yet they're so vibrant what they're doing is way better at the stage of development mm-hmm. that they're at than the stuff that we as Brits or the US was making say in their second or third year of development mm-hmm. so Interesting. it's got a lot of uh-huh. a lot of promise there and a lot of fantastic brands are going to emerge from the Australian market so how do you see the gin foundry like what, what do you see it as so Gin Foundry is really a big umbrella. Um, we see it as both a, a platform and a, a patron of gin. All right? So a platform to celebrate all gin, um, uh, and that's really identified in Junipalooza. It's us hosting makers so that people can to facilitate people finding the right gin for them. Um, a, a, pla- a platform for it within GinVent, um, i.e. we take it, curate it, and put it into people's homes. Um, we see it as a platform for it from a perspective as an online uh, web and editorial telling people's stories, trying to provide a snapshot and a view of the world uh, of gin, insight, news, information, uh, in, in like un, I suppose impartial insight. Um, and then we see it a patron of in terms of we try and um, help uh, collaborate where we can uh, with other bloggers. For example, Caroline. Caroline's a really good example of this. Um, work with, um, uh, try and help people with workshops that we do, tastings that we do. I host House Open Gin Distillery workshops all the time. Um, and try and uh, nurture, generate, support, uh, and progress that next generation of gin makers. So we see it as both this sort of pulling, pulling, pushing, uh-huh. um, celebration of gin slash. But it's quite multifaceted and quite complicated because of that. But really, it's underpinned by that by those two very, very simple facts. Um, now I also see a still in the corner. Yes. <laughs> so there's that too. Yeah. So we yeah. So we are technically a registered distillery mm-hmm. um, and compounder. Um, so rectifier and compounder. We make spirits here. Um, uh, so bespoke gins for bars. Uh, something that we do. Um, we it comes with strings attached. So you'll never see our gins or a gin made by Gin Foundry in a shop um, because I think that stops 
you being impartial, I think, or having. So it's 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 uh, I say strings attached. So a fantastic example of the two that we've uh, two that we've made. Are one is for the Oliver Conquest, um, uh, and that is a gin bar in Allgate East. Amazing gin selection. Talking hundreds of gins, uh, led by a team who really know everything there is to help you make your decision. It's not like a big wine list, and you're like, what, what do you do with that? No, this is a massive gin list, and actually, you've got people going. You like this, you'll like that. So they can recommend, mm-hmm. and we wanted to help uh, and support them. And one of the things that they wanted to do was create something that was unique to them, bespoke to them, um, and so that's what we've made. So it's not you never walk in there and they'll say, "Hey, have our gin," or it's not a house pool. It's very much as part of the offering, and it makes a, a destination venue. And when people are there, they go, "Well, here's our gin. This is how it compares to other gins." And it's really, it's it's just it's, it helps as part of the discussion. So it gets people through their door, but also um, through the um, through how we've been distilling and how they've been working. We've managed to learn a lot from them and the context of use, and hopefully. Um, they have uh, gleaned a little bit of insight into the process of how you can make a gin and uh, brought that into their consumer uh, consumer. So that's that's a good example of uh, so sort of strings attached. You know, we we didn't want to be like the gin that over everybody else. It's just right. part of the offering. The other one is Fulham Football Club, for example. Um, they didn't have a gin offering at all, um, and they came to us saying, "Would you like to make a gin bar or help us create a gin bar for our corporate hospitality offering?" brilliant that's the kind of stuff we do all the time mm-hmm. um we helped them develop their develop their um the, i suppose develop a kind of an experience where you, you know a ticket uh so gin and tonic and then a gin bar that's nicely stocked so there's um, all of these are the gins that are geographically based on all of the teams in the league um and then the question comes well who's the home gin and we were like, well, we're Fulham, so it could either be Sip Smith because they're around the corner, or Martin Miller's, whose office is right around the corner mm. as well. So it kind of, uh, and then we're like, well, how about we have our own gin? And we're like, that's absolutely possible. We make it. So it's strings attached in that we're promoting the rest of the category as well as theirs. You know, it's not just about Fulham gin; it's about them being the home offering to the away. Um, and there's all of these gins within this gin bar. Um, so that's that's what I mean by the kind of stuff that we make. It's always with that intent to celebrate all and to push everyone, not just create uh, a competitor product. And that must satisfy your your creative spirit. Yeah, it really. That you is started though. off yeah, with when you studied. Yeah, completely. And it's, uh, you know, making gins and coming uh-huh. up, you know, uh, uh, looking into people's history and archives and trying to translate that into concepts and botanicals and flavors. Um, it's just so much fun, you know. OC, we had. You know, digging back right, well, right the way back to the origins of their pub, and it used to be called the Garrick, and you know the origins of that, and and how that's translated into to the flavour profile and um, to the botanical selection. Yeah, it's, it's 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 really fun, and yeah, we do that on behalf of a few clients, so uh, helping them, I suppose, understand and realise their concept. Some people have great ideas, but how that translates into flavours is quite difficult because when you can have a concept and this is my brand this is my idea actually people have got to taste that and it's got to be there's got they've got to be interlinked and one has to reinforce the other so okay i i'm hearing what you're saying about being so obviously hendrix isn't one of mine but like it's a good example of uh, you're unusual it's about english you know victorian mm-hmm. uh, um uh, 
vanguard of gin drinkers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then you taste it, and you're like, yeah, rose and cucumber, that's weird um, and lovely, and it reinforces the brand message that you've just received. And so, but actually, that's quite hard to do when you go, well, where, where do you even start? And so, a lot of the stuff that we distill is that start where we can go, okay, this is. You're, you're, when you when you say all of these things, this is the 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 ingredients that it's triggering, um, and then sometimes it's obvious. But like, yeah, I get what you mean by oranges, and then sometimes you get clients going, like, really, what would lapsang and uh, pistachios taste like together? We're like, yeah, that will well, we'll distill it for you, and you can you can see. Um, and sometimes it ends in a car crash, and sometimes it ends in something just phenomenal. Yeah. Well, I am surrounded by so many gins that I think we have to have a drink. What do you um, think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so there's, um, there's, you know, there's an, an it's a quite a daunting task. <laughs> you know, so you'll guide me through. Yeah, a wall All of right. gins. So there's, a, there's a whole wall here. Um, and, um, you know, the, the thing that uh, people quite don't quite realize, so it's, it's about six foot tall by six foot wide. That, um, there are about 300, 320 gins in this room, both sides. Um, and uh, this is less than a quarter of what the UK offering is or what the UK consumer can buy within two clicks of a button. Um, so that just puts the level. You talk about, you know, 2009, yeah. <laughs> we were lucky. We were Everyone was bragging if you had four gins on the back shelf. And uh, now today, you're like, well, four gins, you know, what? come on. Where, 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 where's your selection at? So, um, I don't know, yeah, we can have whatever you'd like, you know. Right, well, um, you're going to have to help me. Uh, All right. So, yeah. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Do I need to tell you our cocktail of the week is made with gin? Olivier calls it the gin and it. You can use any gin, but given his knowledge of the clear stuff, I would stick to his recommendations. Start with 35 mLs of pink pepper gin in a shaker. Then 25 mLs of Antica Formula Sweet Vermouth. Top it all up with a dash of orange bitters. Add ice and stir. Strain into a rocks glass, then garnish with a twist of orange. This and all the recipes you hear on the podcast can be found at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Just click on the shop. Thanks so much to Olivier for being our 51st guest and for teaching me how to make my way through all these gins. Next week, we travel back in time to 19th century France, where Alexandre Legrand threw together 27 herbs and spices to create the liqueur Benedictine. We'll get a crash course on its history from Yolanda de Bois and meet bartender Marc Jean, who will teach us a few things about making cocktails with the stuff. Until next time... Bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast, the sister of a Lush Life Manual. For more information and links to everything you heard, plus a bit more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra, and I'm your hostess, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.